Welcome to MediaPost's Brand Insider Podcast, where we interview marketing executives on the strategies and insights that are driving their brands forward in challenging times. I'm your host, Steve Smith, Editorial Director of Events here at MediaPost. MediaPost has been covering the media and marketing scene for over 20 years. You can find highlights of these interviews in our Brand Insider newsletter. The newsletter and all of our industry reporting can be found at MediaPost.com. These podcasts give you access to the full recorded interviews. We have with us Jessica Klodnicki, who's the CMO of Skullcandy. Uh, those of you who are not familiar with Skullcandy, uh, it's a well-known brand among uh, among audio enthusiasts. Uh, they've been making audio headsets and earbuds for years. Uh, back in the day, I used to write for computer magazines, and I remember the Skullcandy brand, Skullcandy brand well. Um, I think it started basically as, into, as an enthusiast brand, especially for snowboarders and, and skateboarders. Um, and, and Jessica, you've been in, with the brand for two and a half years, but you've also been in the outdoor marketing uh, space, uh, sort of at the active gear space for a while before that, right? Yeah, yep. I uh, was working on a brand called Bell, so motorcycle and bike helmets, um, Camelback, which is uh, known in the outdoor space for hydration, and a couple other brands in, in the outdoor space. So came to Skullcandy because even, even though we're a consumer electronics brand at our core, our DNA and the culture feels much more like that of a snowboard brand. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so tell us uh, about, before we start talking about the pivot into the COVID crisis and how that's impacted all marketers, tell us a little bit about Skullcandy's positioning in the market pre-crisis in terms of uh, what was your basic marketing approach, um, you know, in a sense of you know, where your uh, your share of focus and attention went in acquiring customers uh, and also the kind of media spend that you were doing in, in what channels? What were what were the important places for you to be? Sure. Yeah, I mean, we when I joined about two and a half years ago, we sort of reset our brand. It's a young brand, um, uh, but wanted to reset back around what we call our North Star, which is music you can feel. So we really felt like we're kind of the underdog in the space. So just just to understand kind of our position in the world, we play against some really big brands. Um, and at the end of 2019, we were number two in unit market share, only behind Apple, little brand you may have heard of, and number five in dollar share. And the brands that we're playing against are Apple, Beats, owned by Apple, Bose, and Sony in that order. And so we consider ourselves a little bit of a scrappy underdog. We're, we're privately held. We're in Park City, Utah, and so we have to operate a little bit differently. And we felt like for, for the last couple of years, we felt like the way to do that was uh, really zoning in on who our consumer was. And so we, we call our consumer the youthful and adventurous audio consumer. Um, by nature of how our, our brand looks, the fact that we have a skull in the brand, um, we've always um, leaned towards marketing to, to the younger generation, so Gen Z and millennials right now. And we were already completely digitally centric. Um, we have to be extremely surgical in our marketing investments. So we were doing some events um, and, and, and other channels, but really we were heavily um, centered on digital and social to begin with. Um, uh, last year and the year before, nearly 100% digital in terms of our investments. And, um, and in fact, the year before last, we had a 25 episode live stream concert program, which now feels a little bit ahead of its time, would have been would have been perfect right now. But yeah, we've carved out a very targeted group of consumers. 
we know they're living and playing on social and digital. And so that's really where we've directed all of our, all of our spend in terms of channels and investment. Uh, but are they buying mainly at retail? Is it is this is your primary channel still still live retail, uh, physical retail, or uh, how much of it is uh, is online? Yeah, so the online numbers are continuing to increase, and even more so right now. Um, still heavily dependent on brick and mortar, and again, we're kind of a unique brand. We're, we're widely distributed to everything from um, electronics retailers like Best Buy. Um, mass market retailers like Target and Walmart, but then we're also distributed in places like, uh, you know, ski shops uh, at resorts. And, and so, um, so that obviously represents a big part of our business and our retail partners are super important to us. We also sell to Amazon and, um, but we have um, for the last two years really uh, started taking control of our destiny on our own.com. Um, mm-hmm. So we were well positioned coming into the, the current environment uh, to offset some of the the softness that started to happen when when COVID hit, um, and and to start to pivot even more towards online. So uh, so let's pivot into into the the topic at hand. Tell sort of walk us through. Give us the TikTok on how your brand experienced this crisis. I, I mean, um, first of all, you know one one way to come at it is to talk about the supply chain before we yeah. even get into how it uh, impacted sales. Uh, how Tell us about your supply chain and the ways in which all of this uh, hit you. Yeah, so I mean, obviously we, we started hearing about the virus back in December, I guess it was, and had to start um, planning accordingly. We have a whole team based in China um, that helps with our product development and supply chain efforts there. And so we started feeling the impact back then. Um, we had actually started moving some production outside of China uh, because of tariffs for a different reason. Um, but even that was slowed because travel from China to other countries was uh, was stopped or slowed down. And so we uh, managed carefully through that. We actually um, landed in a good place on, uh, from a supply chain standpoint. By, by some miracle, we have... Uh, we identified it early. We built inventory as fast as we could while we could. Um, we uh, managed with our, our, our China-based team. Uh, everything had to shift to work from home. Um, normally, we have a lot of people on the ground in China at the factories um, moving forward product development. We just had to shift everything online, but our, our supply chain held up for us. So um, we kind of identified the issue early our people on the ground there help us identify, identify the issue early. And so we, we weathered that very well and really saw uh, almost no impact on, on the supply chain. Did you have any sense knowing how, uh, what sort of impact you were seeing overseas with this? Did you have a sense of how this was going to reverberate onto the consumer side in the state? Honestly, I don't think anybody predicted it. Like I lived through SARS. I was actually in China when SARS hit. Um, and I remember that happening I remember it impacting our manufacturing a little bit uh, back in my past life, but then it never really emanated beyond that. So I don't think anybody quite predicted that. And uh, you know, I think everybody felt like it was kind of wait and see, wait and see. And then March 11th um, is when we started to have the conversation and we, you know, we had to change overnight. What was amazing is that, you know, we have a group of over 200 employees um, some people work from home periodically, but we didn't, we didn't really have a work from home environment. 
And when this all went down with what felt like kind of no warning, we on, you know, Thursday night went home, on Friday announced stay home. And by that Monday, we had a 200 person workforce operating, you know, completely remotely. What did what and when did you start seeing impact on the sales side? Uh, since obviously you're, I mean, you're you're heavily dependent on retail, um, but you were you had already had both, you know, through third parties like Amazon and others, uh, plus your own direct channel, and you had alternative means. How did that all play out, say in March, uh, in terms yeah. of sales? I mean, we started to feel it almost immediately, particularly where where retail was starting to shut down. You know, we're we're fortunate that we have such a diverse channel mix, as I mentioned earlier, because, you know, you've got Walmart who's who's open and almost thriving in this environment. And then you've got other retailers who had to completely shut down. So that diverse mix helped a little, um, but really what's helping us weather it is our dot-com business and our retailers.com business. And so some of our customers like Target, for example, um, our brick and mortar business slowed down, but, um, but we work with them in what they call DSV, which is um, direct ship from vendor. So when you go to the Target website for some of the long tail products um, that they might not carry in store, they, they carry an extended assortment through this DSV program. And the way it works is we, we drop ship to consumers. Programs like that are thriving. And so um, there's been some really positive points of light within the softness that we've seen at retail. And then we had just built, we had been building for the last two and a half years, a program that we call our content to commerce program. And it was really trying to overtly connect the dots between the branded commerce investments that we were making with our commerce and with the more traditional product marketing and product launches. And that formula we've been fine tuning for about the past two and a half years and seeing really nice success. Uh, we had um, last year, I think it was 170% increase in our e-commerce business year over year. So we were really, really well positioned with our own .com to support uh, the environment of people shopping from home. And that's what we've really leaned into these past what, couple uh, tell, Could you tell me a little bit about that uh, that content marketing initiative? I think you had mentioned that you had, a, you, you had some programming, existing programming, especially around music before this. But tell, tell me a little bit about that, that initiative of how you were using content to drive sales, but then also how that became especially important as the, as the crisis hit. Yeah, and so I think, um, you know, there was a, an unfortunate, uh, unfortunately, sometimes you see brands that are doing beautiful content and really well thought out content, but maybe not necessarily connecting the dots back to commerce. And again, because we're, you know, we're, we're, we're small to mid-sized company, have to be super surgical. We definitely don't have the luxury of doing content for content's sake. And so the live stream program was our first, um, the first time we, we, we played with this formula. And the idea was number one, we wanted to continue to build our audience um, and bring new consumers in the fold. Because we target young consumers, we have to constantly be um, speaking to them, introducing them to the brand and bringing them into the brand. And so um, we did that through this live stream concert program. And, it was 25 full length concerts that we were filming and live streaming from various venues around the country, uh, 30 to 45 minutes in length or more, and um, really rich content, complicated programming, 
um, really uh, authentic from a music standpoint, which we really wanted to uh, plant the flag there. But we couldn't we couldn't just stop there. And, and so the idea was, and probably no 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 magic, no secret that other marketers aren't doing right now. But we were able to build millions and millions of views out of that live stream program and then come back and build the relationship with those consumers and retarget them with what I would call kind of more traditional product launch, product and product communication and sort of move them through the funnel, bring them into our website to buy. And that um, program, the fundamental of that was just really connecting the dots directly from the content over to the commerce side. And since that first program, we've been really fine tuning um, the type of content, the length of content, um, and where we serve the content um, to fine tune that um, with a keen eye on our, our return on ad spend. And we improved on it again last year with a program called 12 Moods. And, um, and now we're doing it again with a new program called Mood Boost. So we, for the last three years, have sort of planted the flag with full 12-month programs of content, the branded content, and then simultaneously um, throughout the year, we, we launch new products and, and retarget all those, all, all those consumers that we've been talking to on the branded side with our more commerce-oriented advertising. Yeah, when we when we come out of this uh, and we go back to live shows, I would love to have you to one of them because this is a favorite topic of mine of how you take a rich content um, marketing program and really create a um, a sensible um, and, and and effective conversion process, or at least make yeah. it into a real lead gen process. Because uh, I, I we could talk about this this part forever uh, because I think that's one of the big big challenges is that. Um, most most content programs really just stop at brand building and really don't don't have a very effective performance piece to it. Yeah, agree. And again, our our CEO is former CFO. I, my background, I actually come from uh, my job before this. I was I was general manager, so I was actually running the full business directly. So my my mindset um, in terms of the PL and the business is probably a little different than most traditional CMOs and mm-hmm. uh, it's worked really well for us. And it's interesting. We've had other brands much bigger than us ask us like, how are you doing? How do you get, how are you getting the support of your CEO or your CFO year after year? And honestly, it's because there's, there's a great business model here and we can directly connect the dots back to commerce and back to some, some material growth for the company. And so it allows us to keep, keep doing the, the creative work. Well, we'll we will put that topic on hold because I would love to get you yeah. to, to come and, and and talk about exactly that because you're you're right you have other brands a lot of the brands that that we see coming to our uh, to our events are asking that same question how can I show the ROI on these wonderful content programs that we're dreaming up yeah um, we love to preach on that so happy to do that <laughs> but um, but I understand but but actually we are going into a bit of a I want, I want to pivot into talking uh, about one of these content programs or at least a really interesting branding initiative that you were I believe planning before this crisis um, and I understand we're in the month of bliss according to your uh, what you guys are calling your mood boost initiative. Explain a little bit about the mood boost uh, plan and, uh, and and how it was. I, I believe you were. Am I right? You were plotting this out before the crisis. We were. Yeah. Uh, so, so tell us what the components of this are and the, and the whole initiative. Yeah. So we, we had a program last year called 12 Moods, which was the genesis. And I'll tell you a little bit about that because that's that's what um, 
created the, the, the next wave. And in essence, again, back to our North Star music you can feel, we wanted to connect the dots between music and mood and emotion. And so we decided that every single month we were gonna drop new content around a different theme, a different color, a different set of content partners. So we worked with 12 different emerging artists. We worked with 12 different board sports athletes across surf, skate and snow. And then because we're, again, the, the little underdog, we, we look for inspiration in different places than our competitors. So we don't, we don't even really look at the typical consumer electronics or headphone space. We were actually looking more at the sneaker and streetwear culture space. Mm. And one of the effective um, things happening there is, is the limited edition drop culture. And we decided to rip off that. So every single month we dropped the new content, the new color, the new mood, and a limited edition product. Um, and part of that was, again, um, to bring, bring new consumers in, but also there was a product category, True Wireless, which everybody knows now and the buds with zero wires. We really needed to double down on communicating on that, that product. So we, we dropped a new True Wireless product every month and it, it worked so incredibly well for us. So we, the metrics from that program were amazing. We doubled the size of our Instagram following, which was important to us. We sold the product out every single month, um, sometimes in less than 48 hours. Um, we, we just got such great credit from our consumers for it. And so Mood Boost, the program that we have just launched, um, the program worked so well for us, we felt like we needed to continue it, but with some new ingredients. And so what we decided to do this time was, um, it started with um, some desktop research about our young consumers again, Gen Z and millennials in particular. And we started unfortunately to see some disturbing uh, statistics around mental health, like exceedingly high rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, and it was just pervasive what we were reading. And so even though I, you know, we know our place in the world, we know we're just, we're just a headphone brand. There's probably only so much we can do about it, but we felt like with those consumers so heavily engaged on social media, we wanted to kind of break up the social media feed and bring a little, a little light and a little, uh, a little mood boost to a kind of never ending stream of bad news. And that was before what's going on today. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that was sort of the genesis. And so the idea was we're gonna keep it totally positive, totally uplifting. Um, there were some other little tweaks. We wanted to move towards more sh short form, snackable content, we call it. Um, we added some new interesting elements, like this time we added um, visual artists. So each limited edition drop every month is a true wireless audio product plus a uh, limited edition art print from a visual artist. And then we use um, that art to infuse that into the video content. So when you see the videos, um, we decided to weave that, uh, those visual elements in. Some of, the, um, some of the inputs to that were we, we've been spending a lot of time with the Facebook and Instagram people and trying to optimize our content. And one of the things they've counseled us on, which was really helpful, and you've probably heard this phrase, but they've been pounding the drum telling us to design for sound off and delight with sound on. Hmm. And so we felt like as an audio brand, that's kind of scary if a huge percentage <laughs> of your consumers are listening with sound off, um, but it is the reality. So we decided we'd make a super short, um, easily consumable and extremely, extremely visual. Um, 
And so that, that's the, the formula is this, you know, cool, snackable visual content with both um, emerging artists and athletes, the limited edition drop product again, paired with that poster. Um, and every single month we'll do this. So this month was blissful. And tomorrow we drop the next mood, which I can tell you is confident. Hmm. And then the last ingredient and probably one of the most important ingredients to us right now is that um, we, that, that information that we found about our young consumers, um, not only did we want to break up the feed and give a little light, we, we wanted to do something about it. We wanted to give back and be a part of the solution. So we started investigating mental health organizations and nonprofits, and there's so many wonderful ones out there. Um, but we found um, an, an organization called To Write Love on Her Arms, and they, they truncated T-W-L-O-H-A. They, um, amazing organization. Um, their mission is to present hope and, and find help for people struggling with depression, addiction, self-injury, and suicide. And they, they um, really kind of help point people towards resources to find treatment and recovery. But they're very youthfully oriented, they're very music oriented, they, they carried a lot of DNA that matched up with us, so we just, we love them for that. And we felt like um, they kind of spoke the language of a lot of young people. If you search for help on this topic, there, unfortunately, there is a lot of clinical, um, clinical looking websites out there that are a little bit scary. So they, they present um, inspiration and information in a really nice way for our consumers. So. So we decided to partner with them and um, we thought by partnering with them, we could number one, help shine a spotlight on, on the issues, shine a spotlight on their organization um, so that they could you know, help people find the help that they needed. And then, and then of course, we're contributing financially by giving a portion of the proceeds of all those limited edition products are also going back to To Write Love from the US, um, Europe and, and UK. I'm I'm really fascinated by this association because first of all, it sounds to me as if um, there's this the mood boost initiative and all also all of the, um, the sort of the, the helpful mental health issues around it. It's uh, it's a natural extension of at least part of the brand. So you're taking an existing theme of the brand, feel the music. Uh, and you're finding that 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 gives you a kind of place in this in this um, in this issue, so that you're not coming at it unnat unnaturally, and it doesn't feel inauthentic that you're there talking about it. Yeah, that's I mean that's how we feel, and we know that music I mean music transports people. In fact, um, the to write love on our arms. There's actually a movie out that tells the story of the founder, Jamie Turkowski, and the young woman that he was trying to help. And when you watch this movie, like you'll get shivers because, you know, as she's struggling with addiction, and she, she turns to her music um, when, when she's struggling. And we think that's a, a common theme. And we think that, you know, there's nothing like music to help change your mood in one way or another. So yeah, it, it, it felt like a real natural extension for us. Um, and feels, um, you know, it, when we looked at, you know, where could we as a brand help? Where, where do we have a right to help? Where um, this just this just felt like a really a really natural place for us to do so. It's been a wonderful start to the relationship. Is there is obviously a risk in aligning a brand with a topic as sensitive as mental health? Um, 
So I, I want to uh, probe a little bit into this issue of how do you venture into this kind of relationship with a consumer um, and understand what the guardrails are, what, what you're able to discuss and not discuss, or how you come at this so that you're not um, getting too dark um, uh, and, uh, but, but at the same time, maintain, you know, being an authentic voice there, trying to offer help or, or, uh, align yourself with the issue. I'm, I'm curious about the co- kinds of conversations that you guys have internally about where we go and where we don't go. What sort of messaging is appropriate for a consumer brand getting into a pretty serious space when taking yeah. on these types of issues? Such a good question. First, Skullcandy, if you've known Skullcandy over the years, we've never shied from any kind of controversy. Um, The brand was such a a rebel and pioneer when it it first came out. So I think from that standpoint, we have have that permission. Like we definitely, we align with um, a very diverse mix of of artists and genres. And boy, the, the conversations we have on social media last year, 12 different artists, like, our social media feed was really fun to watch because some some consumers loved artists we chose, some hated them, uh, and we're we're okay with that that bit of controversy. So, um, so from that standpoint, we have a little bit more of a risk <laughs> profile, uh, risk tolerance, you should say, um, than maybe some other brands. But this felt this just felt like an issue that. Um, didn't feel controversial per se. We did have lots of conversations about how do we present the idea. And I think um, what you'll see is that the the desire to help here was the genesis for the program. We have an introductory video that we've shared that sort of tees up the problem and tees up the challenge. But in the content that we're putting out, we're, we are keeping it positive. So from that standpoint, like it's hard to... Mm-hmm. It's hard to offend with what we're posting. We're posting really uplifting, positive... Co- uh, content. Um, we're partnering with To Write Love, and um, so the the consumer facing, uh, aside from teeing up the why and um, the challenges that consumers are facing, what you're seeing day to day and what we roll out is, is so uplifting and positive. It's kind of kind of hard to feel controversial, and so it sort of made it an easy decision in, in how we presented the content. I think what's changed a little, um, you know, when we talk about how has coronavirus um, changed what we're doing. It didn't change much. So we were already planning this program. Um, we did pause when this all went down. We were we we launched on April 1st. So, you know, the world went nuts on March 13th. We were two weeks out from launching this thing and we did have to pause and decide like, is this still appropriate? Um, and where we landed was not, not only was it appropriate, in fact, the, the issues that we were ready to tackle have sadly accelerated and impacted even more people. So this is not, uh, you know, people that didn't struggle before are now facing anxiety over their health and their finances. People are at home and isolated. And so we kind of decided that there was no better time than to release our message. And the only real tweaks in this particular program were just making sure the tone um, and the copy that we were acknowledging, not just the, the larger mental health um, challenges that are happening in the world, but acknowledging the, the current situation. And so, but it really was kind of just minor tuning of our language to make sure we're showing empathy and currency um, with what's going on in the world. 
since you're using social media to distribute a lot of this, uh, tell me a little bit about the kinds of interactions that you're having with your customers around this content. Uh, super positive. Like I said, we, we, we sometimes have some nice debates over the artist content that we publish. Um, but honestly, it's, it's really positive. Um, we, uh, we've got great feedback and partnering with to write love to write love has, has leaned in and, and been talking about the relationship. We're going to try and do a little more, even more this month because May is mental health month. Um, so we're looking to potentially do, uh, some Instagram live, uh, conversations with Jamie, the founder, mm-hmm. but the feedback has been incredibly positive. And besides just the kind of qualitative soft feedback, um, the quantitative feedback is that we sold out of the limited edition product like that. Um, mm-hmm. and it was double the number of units it was last year. Um, we just looked at our metrics. So we just finished the first month of the program today. So you're the first person to hear these numbers. Um, so in the U S only in that first month, we had 76 million impressions, 10 million video views, 162,000 engagements. So that's likes, shares, comments, video views. And so we can see people are really engaging. And we, when we compare this with the program that we had last year, it's already far exceeded, um, uh, our program last year in, in its first month. So, uh, we're feeling. And do you really think that's awesome. driven mainly by the difference in content as opposed to, say, a different media strategy? Uh, I think it's a little bit that we built up a little bigger base than where we were last year. But then I think the content is just really resonating with people right now and, and ended up being really, really timely. Are you, how much of this? Are, are, how much of this is paid media versus uh, organic distribution? I mean, paid. You have to do paid. You know, we'd like to say that organic is. Uh, I think the world has changed with the algorithms mm-hmm. of social media. So all of the marquee pieces of content are paid. Mm-hmm. So we um, we committed to a 365-day program. So we last year posted 365 days. It was ambitious. Mm-hmm. And doing it again this year. Um, and that's on Instagram, Instagram stories, Facebook. Um, and then we post some on, on YouTube and then Twitter. And... Um, of course, not every piece is, is paid, but the marquee pieces of content, like the um, musician performances, the athlete and the artist interviews, um, we boost those for sure. And that uh, kind of have, it's kind of a cost of entry nowadays. Mm-hmm. Do you think brands should take themselves more seriously in, in this way? And what I mean is by att- attempt to get more personal with consumers in this way. Yeah, I, um, you know, we last year, um, as we were forming last year's program, we always like to look at, we, we do deep segmentation studies of our consumer, but then we also do just a ton of desktop research about just the, the pulse of consumer and what's going on in the world. And um, what we were reading last year was just, unfortunately, young consumers are distrustful of the government in many cases. Um, they're frustrated. And they believe brands and companies have the power to, to change things now and have the power to improve things and everything from climate change to issues like this. They genuinely believe brands have a, a, a higher chance of success than relying on what's going on politically. And they kind of expect it. And so I think you have to do it in an, in an authentic way. You have to find, you have to find the cause or the issue that really um, 
truly runs deep and um, I think you have to embed it in the organization and, and really su support it. Um, I don't know if it's for every brand um, because I think it's, it's clear when it's forced or when it's not a, a good fit, but I, I think it's starting to become expected by our consumers and especially our younger consumers. Uh, what have been the biggest lessons that you've learned during this crisis about any of the pieces that that, that touch you, your own organization, uh, the consumers that you're, you're dealing with, the media uh, channels? Yeah, I guess um, from an organization standpoint, um, I would say, man, our, our team has been super resilient. And uh, every week I send a note out to the team week one through week eight now <laughs> and every week I thank them because I just can't believe that we literally overnight converted nearly 200 people from the office to working from home and we really haven't missed a beat I mean it was a terrible time for us <laughs> because we were about to launch this whole program um, we also have a major set of product launches coming on June 1st mm. and the fact that everybody um, pivoted was just amazing and so um it reinforced for me, we, we built, we decided to build an in-house creative agency uh, close to two years ago and have been building it up ever since. And it absolutely reinforced that as a positive decision because, um, you know, everything we've done, everything we're doing, there's other areas where we've had to pivot more. Mood Boost, we haven't changed much about what we're doing, but we've had to tweak um, on our product marketing, which I can come back to. Mm -hmm. we've totally changed the messaging and the creative uh, and that would have been really difficult for us for our size for our investment levels to try and do that through a third party but because we have our in-house team we were able to pivot immediately I mean we're making daily and weekly decisions on things so um, you know retaining that agility is a massive lesson mm -hmm. uh, our, from our consumer standpoint we we cast the net a little wider. We, um, we, we use these segmentations that we've built. We're pretty rigorous about, you know, who we're talking to and this younger consumer group that I've been talking about, but we, we did experiment with casting the net wider recently. Um, and, and that's worked really well for us. So we, we have a bunch of product launch community or product communication that's been happening in addition to the mood boost programming. And we started talking to, you know, parents with kids at home and people working from home and professionals and just a little different um, and wider group and it, it worked for us. So some of that will, will probably hang around. And then from a, a channel standpoint, we were so digitally centric. The, the, the channels haven't changed. Like we were so invested in, in Facebook and Instagram and the Google ecosystem that we're, we didn't change anything there. We just, we doubled down and we've been, um, the way we operate, we have a return on ad spend threshold that is, as long as that's uh, above the level where we want it, we keep spending. So we've actually been doubling down on, on the spending um, during this period and it's worked really well for us. Um, we, we also control our own media buying. So we were able to pivot quickly there. Mm -hmm. which, which are your dominant channels? So is, it, so is social the, your lead channel? Social and Google. Yeah, so yeah. Facebook and Instagram primarily. And Google search and shopping are the key, key channels for us. Um, a a cra crazy positive results um, last week that just uh, were astounding. And so I think um, we... From what? What, uh, what, what, yeah. what, what? what triggered it? 
Uh, I, again, I think one, I think that there are a lot of people on social right now. So there's, there's mm. more people just in the channel. Number two, we cast the net a little wider. So we decided to open up the aperture and talk to a broader group of consumers than we normally would. Mm. And then we totally tuned our creative. So we, um, in that spirit of the content to commerce marketing that I talked about in our retargeting ads, um, we completely shifted all of our creative to just speak directly to what's going on. So like some of the headlines were block out the noise and maybe the news or um, find some quiet during quarantine or more music, less mom on board. And so like every piece of that content was adjusted to speak to what's happening right now. And as we're keeping our finger on the temperature, like right now things are starting to, to lift. Um, the stay at home orders are lifting. So like, the mood's changing a little bit and, and we're going to have to change that creative accordingly. And, uh, and you know, the agility that we have with the in-house team allows us to do that. And so as a result, last year, our e-commerce was up 110% year to date. Mm. And then we had a 10 day period. Um, and this was around when the stimulus checks were going out. So we think that helped with a bump, but we were up and it sounds like a crazy number, but it's real. We had a 10 day period where we were up 743% versus the same time last year. And it was almost as big as Black Friday. Uh, mm. And so I think it's, you know, perfect storm of people shopping online, our particular products, people are, you know, there's families and, and roommates all working and studying and living in the same space that need, you know, need some quiet, need to block things out. Um, we have done, you know, we've gotten a little more promotional than we normally would, um, just as people economically are feeling anxious, uh, which I think has helped. But uh, yeah, it's, it's been a pheno phenomenal results uh, on our own.com. And it's, it's come from a lot of those learnings and continue to fine tune those learnings. And then I think just the, the appetite in, in the category. Uh, what do you expect is gonna change for good out of this? <sighs> I mean, I think, um, you know, people were already shopping online. I think that accelerates even more. I think there's either categories people were less inclined to buy online that they are now because they were forced to. I think there's channels or customers that maybe they weren't used to shopping with, but now they are. Like, I love going to Target so I can stroll the aisles and get stuff that I don't need. Um, but, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, tar Target, which is a retailer that... Um, Maybe wasn't being shopped as much online. I think people will stick. I think, um, you know, just making sure the shopping gets more and more frictionless. We, you know, we, we're using Instagram shopping as an example. And the less, the less steps, I think people's expectations mm -hmm. are getting higher and higher for less, less friction there. Um, I think, um, you know, just connecting people digitally, like I, uh, I think people are going to crave in-person events again at some point, but it spurred some really cool creative things, both, you know, personally for people that are connecting over virtual happy hours to like how musicians are interacting with their fans to um, master classes and, and, you know, learning how to cook or paint. Um, I think a lot of that's going to stick around. And I, I think it actually creates um, some interesting and more cost-effective ways to engage with our consumers and replace some of that in-person experiential. We, 
we used to be notorious for doing a lot of in-person events. And over the years, that's, um, that's dwindled down because it's, it's really tough to scale. If you're, you know, you're going out physically to events, you're only talking to maybe a couple thousand people at a time. Um, when you turn those things digital, going back to the content to commerce idea, when we're engaging digitally, if we can bring, you know, cool, rich digital experiences and then go convert, um, that, you know, economically makes a lot more sense than, than in-person events. So I don't think in-person events are going to go away because I think people are going to crave contact, but I think, you know, I think some of the, the, the digital experiences that have been occurring out of all this are going to stick around. Well, good. You, I, my, my heart started again after you said that because oh, I run the events here. Sorry. For me, so. <laughs> I was an airline pilot and one of the things I had on my list that I scratched off that I should say out loud is I, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think travel, travel is one that um, I do think just as an employee, as a company, some of the impact is you're just, you are going to consider the need uh, for in-person versus virtual uh, yeah. time and cost efficiency uh, I hope that business comes screaming back to life soon, but, um, but I, I, I do think there will be some permanent impact there as well. Well, uh, Jessica Klodnicki, uh, CMO of Skull Candy, thank you so much uh, for the time that you spent with us. These are wonderful insights, and I hope that we'll get, uh, get you to our event soon to, to drill into some of these topics. I'm especially interested in this um, in content marketing and the ways in which you can connect the dots with that. I think that'd be really fast. That's really fascinating stuff. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting us share the story. Okay. And thanks for tuning into media post brand insider podcast. You can keep up to date with breaking marketing and media industry news at mediapost.com. That's where you can also subscribe to the Brand Insider newsletter, where highlighted versions of these interviews can go to your email, email inbox each week. If you have any comments or suggestions for the Brand Insider series, please send them to me, steve at mediapost.com.